the Making Sense of Life podcast number 38. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sonora Hager, as we discuss what it means to live in a world that is rapidly changing and challenging in so many ways. Today's podcast is a continuation of the last two. Uh, we're looking at the book Virtually Human by Ed Brooks and Pete Nicholas, and we have Pete with us. Welcome again, Pete. Thanks, Sonora. It's great to be here again. And we're working through, thinking through some of the challenges that technology proposes to us uh, in the, in the in the previous podcast, I'd encourage you to go to them if you haven't already, uh, to understand the framework of, of how technology moulds and shapes us. And we've also looked at the areas of um, identity and relationships. Today we're going to cover two quite huge subjects, really. One is the area of time and technology, and the other is the area of sexuality. So, so keep listening, and, and uh, we hope and trust that you'll, you'll find great encouragement from our conversation. So, Pete... We're coming from your book, Virtually Human, mm. and let's think about now this area of time. And so we say that this is a complement podcast 24, which is about making sense of time. We tend to see time uh, as linear, as a straight line, and particularly in our sort of secular Western world, is that time goes on and then it just finishes, and that's mm-hmm. the end. Mm. Tell us about that, but also tell us about an alternative to, to that view. So, yeah, you're right that there's. Um Almost as you say it, you would think, well, what else would time be? So it had a definite beginning, according to our narrative of time, you know, the Big Bang, and that's when time came into existence. It will have a definite end, heat, death, or Armageddon or something, and that's what we're often, you know, seeing on our on our film screens. Um, but the, the time hasn't always been viewed that way. The ancients viewed time in a much more cyclical way, so with the passing of seasons and then the returning of the seasons and also the week and the way that the week would rotate and return as well. And perhaps a few hundred years earlier, that life was obviously much more predictable. There wasn't the massive changes that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, arguably so. And, you know, sometimes maybe the the way that we frame those changes is actually maybe because we view time as linear and therefore we're more in tune to them. There might have been the changes maybe not quite so fast-paced, but we're measuring them more, I suppose, now. And it wasn't that the ancients didn't see time progressing. Of course, there would be a sense of history and all the rest of it, but within the context, there was a greater emphasis on the cyclical nature. One of the things we try to unpack in the in the book is, again, asking the question, is this story accurate? And, of course, there's much that is accurate about it, and much that has actually been formed by the Judeo-Christian view of the world. So the Big Bang... Um, was actually a phrase that was coined by someone in a radio interview where they were trying to say that actually the universe was in a steady state, not like the creationists who argue for, um, for, argue for a big bang by which it all started. Now, of course, 
that was then picked up and it's ironic that now the thing that the person was arguing for at the time saying that it wasn't like this is now actually the judeo-christian view where god created time That's right, at a particular accepted. point yeah, yeah. It's, so it's when someone says how can you believe in god when there was a big bang one of the great questions is, no did you know that that original phrase was coined to say that you can't believe that you would believe in god if there was a big bang yes. so it's the opposite that's having your cake and eating it anyway yes. we digress but one of the things to pick up in the book is the way that the end of time as in this kind of heat death that people kind of um, or an armageddon is different to the christian view of the end of time where end can have two meanings in the english language mm-hmm. end can be a hard stop something that ends yes. finishes finite end can be the goal or the realization yes. so the sense of telos in greek the end to which we're heading yes. and you give the example of marriage as an example of that yeah, yeah so when uh, my wife and i were engaged then the end of the engagement was not the end of the relationship it was the goal to which the relationship was heading which was marriage and actually it opened the doorway into a fuller and better relationship so the um, engagement was for a time and it ended but it wasn't the end of it's over it was the end of it reaching its fulfillment as telos which is marriage and the relationship that flourished and that's very much the picture actually a very biblical picture of marriage from <clears throat> genesis 2 through to revelation 21 that actually there will be an so end the to spread, the bible from the beginning to the end from yeah. genesis to revelation that there will be an end to this created order but the end will be at reaching its fulfillment and then it will become like an engagement that leads to marriage will it will become a new relationship in the new creation the relationship we're made for as we fully and finally see god face to face and i think that's that, that's that again beautifully put by c.s lewis in his final book of the narnia series the last battle he says and as he aslan spoke he no longer looked to them like a lion but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. Mm. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So that's building on that, on that theme you talked about, is that the end is not the end, it's, it's, a, it's a new chapter, as, um, as Lewis says in, in, in that book. But can, let's compare and contrast that with, with the narrative of the story that the world tells us around mm. us, that there is a story of never-ending progress, a mm. linear story of, of we're getting better and better, mm. which maybe in the area of technology we are, we certainly are, I mean... But, you know, as someone's pointed out, the 20th century was also the most violent century in history. So at the same time, while we've progressed technologically, um, we've also, as we've found, more means of killing and destroying each other and damaging each other. Yeah, we might want to nuance that story and say we've progressed in some ways and we've regressed in other ways. Because, of course, as we said in the earlier podcast, progress always implies a definite end or goal you're heading towards. And unless you're able to evaluate what that goal is and therefore have you made... You know, have you made strides towards that goal? It's impossible to actually measure progress. And we need to avoid what C.S. Lewis um, memorably described as chronological snobbery, which Mm. is, you know, to say that something is better simply because it's newer. That's naive. And and we just think that everywhere, the media, everything just instinctively says that. We assume that 
Windows 10 is better than Windows 9. Right. iPhone these... 7 is better than iPhone 4, otherwise it would be called iPhone 6. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if, if an, you know, every successive innovation is better just by the... And the, the number counting you know, way of measuring things is very instructive as well because a new update comes in. But we know this because when Windows comes in, it has more glitches and some of us get frustrated and say, oh, well, it can't do what it used to do or... You know, why is it working slower? I've got a friend, for example, who um, a key part of his job is making phone calls. And so he does have an iPhone or a, an Android, I'm not sure which one, but he also has a, an old Nokia phone because he says it's just much better call quality um, and therefore since it's so important for him. So again, I mean, the phone is not as good at doing what a phone is originally designed to do, the phone call. So, you know, is technology better? Well, you know, by having all these other things going on on the phone, actually, it's not very good at making no, phone calls. Interesting. So, so, so there's this issue, as you said, the, the chronological snobbery that, that newer is always better. It's challenging that. But let's just let's think about what you'd call God's timeline. So one of these issues is that the, the end is also the goal in the new chapters. But also, um, it's also one where we are not in, in, in the driving seat as well. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a, there's a few things to draw out there. One of the, uh, we would argue, I suppose, that one of the, the if not um, the greatest invention of the industrial period um, was the clock. Um, and just down from where I live in Old Street, Central London, is Clerkenwell, which was the Silicon Valley of its day. It was the centre of clock making in the world. Um, and so once you start to measure time and you start to have clocks and things like that that can measure time much more accurately than a sundial or things, you know, then once you can, you can measure it into greater degrees of accuracy, then, you know, every second becomes, you know, really important. And so rather than you and I, for example, saying let's meet in the afternoon and, you know, that will be the only meeting I have in the afternoon because I don't know how long it will take and we'll just meet in the afternoon. Suddenly it says we'll meet from two till three. And we've got to maximize our one hour together. And then mm. you start to notice the seconds and the nanoseconds and you yes. get this thing that we, we pick up and some commentators have talked about in the book called um, hyper time, yes. you know, where every second or every nanosecond so matters. So it's time as a commodity then, really. Yeah. yeah, and I used to teach or used to be involved with the economics and doing PPE. And um, in order to commoditize something, two um, conditions need to be met. First of all, it needs to be private, which means you need to own it because you can't commoditize something if it's owned by someone else or it's generally available, which is why we can't sell air yet. Yes, okay. um, and it also uh, needs to be finite, needs to be limited resources. So again, you can see now, if you, if you think that time is mine, I own it, then it's a commodity, as well as time is finite, I've only got so much of it. And it picked up in our language, isn't it? You're spending time, wasting my mm. time, taking up my time. You know, it implies that, you know, um, time is like money is, you know, or time is money, cash rich, time poor, for example, and that we can trade it, commoditize it, um, and we can use it, waste it, for example. Sure. So let, but if we think about God's perspective on this, so the, the phrase you use is, is stewardship. Mm. So stewarding is not about a frantic struggle to squeeze out of life the most we can. Stewarding <coughs> time is about ordering our lives properly according to God's uh, divine purpose and plan. Well, to pick up on those two points about what's required for time to be seen as a commodity, it must be a private good that I own, and it must be limited. The gospel and the biblical way of thinking would push back on both of those. Is it a private commodity I own? No. God no. is the potentate of time, as one hymn memorably puts it. He is the one who controls all time, and he gives us And he time. can take it away at any time. Yeah, and he okay. gives us a time as a, as a gift. As a psalmist, you know, prays, teach me to number, teach us to number our days aright. Number because, actually, we've only got a certain number of days, and God determines those. So it's not a private commodity of own for the first thing. It's something that God owns and graciously gifts to us to steward. And secondly, 
time is and it isn't limited. So yes, this side of the new creation, time is limited, and so you have the prayer in Colossians to make the best use of time, for example, Colossians 4. But equally, time is not limited, because if I don't, you know, this why bucket lists are so ridiculous. Mm. Because well, if I'm what, trusting what, what, in the what, world... What must I do before I do? All the things I must well, do exactly. before I and, die. Yeah. And this is where the wonder of the new creation, all those things that I haven't been able to do before I die, I can do in the new creation, yes. where they'll be perfect anyway. Which so, is a completely, you know, a radical perspective compared to the way that many people in, in the world tend to think. Exactly. I've got to squeeze everything in, in the time I've got. And yeah. therefore, time is not a commodity, rather time is a gift to be stewarded. And that actually... Also, the other view that we, we have that buys into this is, that, is the idea that actually time is there as a big lump and I get to do with it whatever I, I want, but that's just not realistic. God determines our times and our days and our seasons, mm. and God gives me the good works to walk in Ephesians 2 um, every day. And therefore, part of receiving time as a gift from God is to say, what have you apportioned for me to do today, God? And what have you left for tomorrow? And therefore, what can I walk in and make the best use of time today? And there's one, there is freedom within that, but also there's, a, there's quite a lot that's ordered for me that I need to walk in. And so partly the, the challenge of modern technology is to not be striving against the givenness of God's good gift yes. and, stu- and stewarding it well. Because when we do, then that leads to areas of having anxiety you talk about. Massively. And, and issues of not getting enough rest. And we, we talk about that on other podcasts in terms of beating burnout and getting enough sleep. And the irony of that is that actually if you look at all of the metrics on this, we don't actually, contrary to what we think, we don't work harder than than we've ever done. That's not true. If you compare us to 40 years ago, compare us to 200 years ago, we work, actually we work fewer hours than Mm -hmm. 40 years ago. You know, our hours have gone down in the working week. So you have to ask the question, why are we so burnt out if we're working less and we have more resources devoted to leisure? The yeah. problem is, is there's a deeper internal issues going on. It's not actually about the circumstances. It's about us not being able to receive the time we've been given as a gift. Yes, that's very helpful. Okay, uh, anything you want to say about time? Otherwise, we're going to move on because of time. <laughs> we probably don't have the time. <laughs> we don't have time. We want to cover this other huge area, about the huge area of sex, sex and te- technology. And we all know the sense the as it were, the ubiquitous nature of sex on, on the internet. I mean, you talk, I think you mentioned a book about there are claims that up to half of all internet spending is related to sex, and at least 20% of all internet users have engaged in some form of virtual sex, mm. be that through pornography um, or, or whatever, like that. Um, please explain to us, what do you call the digital story of sex? Well, it's impossible, I suppose, to... Um, disentangle uh, kind of the story of sex in the digital age from the sexual liberation movement that started, you know, in the late 20th century and, you know, the philosopher Michel Foucault was a key part of. And within that was a real drive and a desire to liberate us from the old sexual taboos and to instead enter a new stage of freedom where sex could be enjoyed without restraint and without constraint. Um, and so in that you get the kind of narrative of the, you know, of the 60s um, and liberated sex and then the 80s of new sexual expression. And so really within that narrative, and again, there was, we need to be careful, it wasn't that everything was bad within the sexual liberation movement. There were taboos that needed to be overcome, but like many of these things, it swung from one extreme to the other, such that the answer that Michel Foucault was proposing was that there should be no restraint on anything. So no restraint on gender, no restraint on orientation, no restraint on action. And we're living with the consequences of that now. Yeah, significantly. And of course, the, the technological... Um, 
thing that's enabled that to become a reality has been the internet. So, again, this is idea. I mean, we've even had it recently, haven't we? With um, uh, you know, with uh, the government releasing um, uh, releasing information about wanting to get to the point where changing gender will be something you can do completely uh, regardless of any psychological orientation or any physical reality about your gender. In other words, they basically said gender is not at all related to biology or to psychology or to any givenness of a human being. It's just what I choose myself. Totally. And that's and it's, it's astonishing for a government to make such a thing. And that, that view is has only been held in the blink of an eye, even yeah. in the Western world. Um, and but then you can see that was actually that's that's the fulfilment of the sexual liberation yes. movement and it was the really the vision that Michel Foucault was, you know, was trying to sell. Um, and so that's where we find ourselves now. Yes. And in a sense, what would you think, because obviously trying to, to make sense of, of this, uh, of sexuality in the way that's presented through technology, we need some kind of sort of compass to, to guide and direct us. One of the sort of myths I think that, that, that is around is that somehow um, sexuality is somehow think that it's bad in, in the Bible, but actually it, it's, it's far from that. How does the Bible talk about sexuality? Yeah, the, there's a wonderful balance, I think, to the biblical view of sexuality, which would be a surprise for most people. For example, there's a whole book of the Bible, Songs of Solomon, Song of Songs, which is all about sex. I mean, uh, there have been various mm -hmm. attempts over the course of church history to try to allegorize it and make it about something else, and it obviously does link to a relationship with Christ. But primarily, it's a book all about mm -hmm. sex. Yeah. Um, and, and, God, and God invented sex, and none of us would be, nobody would be here if it wasn't for sex. Right, and the Bible's very open. There are commands to have sex and to delight in you know, your wife's breasts, for example. And so there are, you know, the Bible manages to talk about sex in a way which is open, without being smutty and crude, mm. um, but also has restraint without being repressive. And yes. those are two extremes which it seems to Within me yeah. which seems to me that, that our culture is just not able to yes. do. So there's either an openness which leads to crudeness and a, and a smuttiness and an objectification, or there is a repression and a shunning of it and a taboo. But actually, rarely do you find a kind of open and honest conversation which, like, which keeps it romantic and beautiful, but also is you know able to talk about it in a robust and important way. But yes, absolutely. So, and the analogy I found very helpful is if you think about sex as fire, then fire within within the fireplace, within the right boundaries and confines, can be enormously enriching and, and, and wonderful. Mm -hmm. But take it out of the fireplace, you can then burn down burn down the whole house. Right. Uh, and so it can have devastating consequences. And and in many ways, as it were, our society and culture in the West has basically allowed the fire to spread wherever wherever we should we should choose or want to yeah and there have been as you as you alluded there have been some important breaking down of some unhealthy sexual and social taboos and that needed to happen but then there has been with that a kind of a freewheeling and a lack of any restraint or sense of guidance or any givenness to sex that actually just um you know which is leading us into some real problems alongside that as well one of the things we talk about in the book is the way that there's been a, a fragmentation yes, so um, yes. So tell us, tell us about that. helping to understand ourselves as holistic beings and therefore our sexual identity and our sexual orientation and our sexual expression is cannot be divorced. So when you say holistic, you mean as whole human beings? Yeah, it yeah. can't be divorced from who we are. can't be divorced from my biology. can't be divorced from my psychology or my spirituality. It's all part of the integrity of who I am. 
And um, a book that's really helped me on this, a phrase that, um, uh, that John Wyatt has used in his um, book called Massive Life and Death, which is about medical ethics. Yes. But he uses, the, he uses the phrase there, the Lego kit mentality to human beings, which is the idea that you can add bits onto human beings and you can take bits off oh. human beings. And you see this, unfortunately, in the, in the way that um, objectification works. So um, a woman... So treating a person as an object for their own gratification. Yeah, yeah. so a, a woman is, you know, or a man can be objectified by saying that they are just there as an object to be for my own sexual gratification. And in order to do that requires a number of steps of fragmentation. I no longer think of them as a person with a history, with a cultural context. Um, you know, with a relationship. So, for example, if you ask most people who were looking at a pornographic image, you know, well, if you said to them, well, did you know, for example, that that woman, let's just say, is an Eastern European, Eastern European person who is currently um, in some kind of form of slave trafficking and she's got a child and this is, you know, um, this is adding to her the oppression of her, how would that help your sexual high? Well, of course, that would smash it yes. straight away. But that's the reality behind so much pornography. Mm-hmm. But the point is it's not presented like that. It's presented with a glamorous image, an attractive woman on a page, but yes. it's totally divorced from who she from is, the circumstance she's going through, where she is. And then, of course, you fragment it down degrees further to just to focusing on a particular body part. Mm. And so you have lads mags with, you know, kind of rear of the year and other grotty titles and things like that. Where it's not even the woman in her social context as a human being made in the image of God. It's a part of a woman or a part of a boy or a part of a man you know, that's being objectified and gloried yes. in. And so this total fragmentation of the human being when we're meant to see them as yes. made in the image of God holistically. And, and you gave a very interesting and helpful example of, of, of the ex-editor of a sort of pornographic magazine who initially was pr- promoting it as not causing any problem and then became a parent, became a father himself. Right, so Martin Daubney, he's the ex-editor of Loaded, and he, as he says um, uh, in the various interviews he did, he had even you know, argued for defence of lads, mags, culture at the Oxford Union and then the key change for him was when he became a parent and he had a daughter and why is that the key change for him and this is about the the holistic the integrity point because suddenly he stopped seeing in that sense women as objects to be exploited but he started seeing the fact that every woman has a father and so the culture that he was involved with he suddenly started asking question how would he as a father now feel about that and that was the turning point yeah and again it's a it's a key way you know to see people and you know to see people as they really are and to see them with integrity connected to other people in relationship in god's world made in god's image and therefore I can't just have an image, but that image is of a person, and that person is involved in certain circumstances, and I am doing something to that person in pornography. Um, yes. So it's so the key thing, obviously, is about the, the way I look and the way I see. Um, and you talk about how the idea of looking is so important to sexuality in the digital age, how I perceive others, how I see myself, how do I look at the world around me. Um, Bring to us about what the Bible would have to say and what Jesus would have to say on that. Yeah, well, there's a, some powerful phrases that Jesus talks about this. He says, um, if you're, um, you know, the, the way that you look at people has a profound impact on you, actually. Um, you yes, know, if your is. eyes are pure, your whole body will be full of light, for example, in the Sermon on the yeah. Mount. And, you know, what he's talking about that is the way that we look at people is actually doing something to us and doing something to them. Um, and there's the question as well, what do we really see? Do we, do we see people accurately? Do we see people as they really are? What's marvelous about Jesus when you see him in the gospels, for example, famously with the woman at the well in John chapter four, is how he sees her. He treats her with a remarkable 
dignity and respect, um, despite the fact that she's a social outcast and she's a Samaritan and she's a woman, and so therefore in the vernacular of the day, she would be considered as nothing in comparison to him, a Jewish man and a rabbi. Um, and she's astonished enough that he would just approach her and talk to her, treating her as as simple as another human being, as an astonishing breaking down of cultural barriers that he will do. But also, he sees her past and sees her history, and he's able to confront her about it with a forthrightness um, that brings it to light, but also a gentleness that means that she doesn't run away and doesn't feel crushed by him. So when he says to her famously, you know, you're right that you have no husband, you know, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with is currently not your husband. I mean, there's a calling out of, that would be the equivalent of saying to someone, you know, uh, yeah, well, you're, you're right that you're not currently married, your browser history instead shows you've been trying to wed yourself to all kinds of pornographic images, and suddenly it would be, <gasps> how do you know me? But being able to say it with a degree of forgiveness and respect and mercy that actually the person feels, I don't need to run away from this, here is someone who knows me, but actually they love me as well. And so he sees her and doesn't objectify her. He sees her and sees all that she can become if she will open herself up to yeah, his forgiveness and redemption. He sees her God-given potential. Yeah, and so at the end, this is an astonishing thing. She runs back to her village and she says, come and, um, come and meet a man who told me all that I've ever done. You can imagine the village saying, we know what you've done. That's why we won't go to the well with you. You know, we know what yes. we call you. And yet she's no longer ashamed about it. She's able to say, you know, I'm forgiven for it and therefore I can confront my past and get past my past. Yes. Just think, in terms of thinking about, because it's obviously a very emotive and difficult subject and something a lot of people struggle with privately. Um, what advice would you give to those who struggle in this area of pornography? Well, uh, or pornography or, or the whole virtual sex area? Basically. Yeah, all of the stats are that this is a, a huge, huge area um, and it's only getting bigger. I mean, um, American Association of Psychologists, I think it's in their top two um, issues that people and that of um, growing issues that people are coming and seeking therapy for, and so it's a huge area. And we should we shouldn't be surprised by that because, as we've said a little bit before in the podcast, there's it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, mm. and um, uh, pornography you know, companies and online media are investing enormous amounts of money, not just to push the images out there, but also to get people addicted to it. And they're very very good at it, and many of them employ psychologists as well. Yes. So they can go through the reward mechanism so that people, once they see an image, they get hooked on the image, they get, and go to videos, and it goes from soft porn to hard porn yes. to darker stuff. And yeah. that's the process they want to take And there's people huge on. money, as you said, involved in that. Massively. So therefore, I think we really need to be very open about talking about it and talking about the struggle and be realistic about the stats on it and know what a huge issue it's going to be in our yeah. congregations yeah. and not be surprised by that. And just, just interrupting, because, because there are people who are having huge discussions and conversations and making huge monies about how to get us hooked. Right. Like and yet we're and equally we need to also not be naive about our devices so part of the problem with I remember when I was at school for example as a, as a lad at school the dare that you know everyone you know hated to kind of put on them was that you had to go into the local 24-7 um, you know kind of um, shop on the corner and ask for a magazine from the top shelf because it was so embarrassing you would never do it so it was if you lost a forfeit that was the thing that you kind of had to do wasn't a Christian school and that was you know it's kind of lads being silly at a young age well you know that just shows where it was at then it yes. was still a thing of social shame and all the rest of it but now that's not no, now yeah. you've got a device then with total anonymity lying in your bed at night you can just turn on that's your device and you can yeah. access something far worse and I think we need to therefore be able to have open conversations about it but equally this is where John chapter 1 verse 14 Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth and we need to be modeling discussions on this which are both truthful to name problems and areas and sin as sin 
and not duck the truth, but it needs to be in the narrative of grace. A person who's written really well, I think, on this is um, Glyn Harrison, and he's um, written a book called The Better Story. And in that, he talks about the way that the gospel offers a better narrative than the yes. narrative of the cultural yes, sex, because and a better think, story. And I think, I think probably that's worth emphasising, is that there is a, a, a lie, an illusion that, that, that as, it, as it were, virtual sex and pornography is trying to say is that somehow you will be satisfied, and yet all the studies show, uh, as well as the experience shows, is that you need to, as you said earlier, you need to move to a, to a greater, to, to, to more and more pornography to get the same level of satisfaction that you got before, and, and, and that diminishes, as well as real relationships completely with, with real people become harder and harder, and any sexual enjoyment actually diminishes and dies. Yeah, online pornography comes with the narrative of liberation. It will make you free. You, know, you can do it anytime, anywhere, and it's great. Uh, control, you're in control, isn't that a wonderful thing? And fulfillment, you'll be satisfied and find joy and happiness in there if you do it and you do it high. And the reality is completely opposite. It's not liberation, it's enslaving. You become addicted very, very quickly. Um, of course, it's not, you're, you're not in control. The moment you're addicted to something, it's controlling you. And anybody who knows anything about it as well knows that it's not fulfilling, that actually what happens is, like any addiction, you have to search for greater highs in order to get the same level of reward. And so therefore what actually the end result is that you can't actually enjoy the very thing that it's all about, which is sex in the context yeah. of heterosexual marriage. You can no longer enjoy that because you've so marred yourself by pornography. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that actually there's forgiveness and there's redemption and there's change for that. So. Yes. So you know, your past doesn't have to dictate your your future. Exactly, they, they, you can, can get change. you can get past your past, um, but equally we need to not be naive and not pull our punches and do recognise that there are real long term consequences if we're not careful, and therefore we need to be on the front foot about dealing with this. Prevention is far better than a cure in this area, and there are some wonderful you know resources out there like you know Covenant Eyes yes. as a browser so that app that you can use, which buddies you up with someone. And you know who would therefore review the content you're looking at and making sure you're careful, enabling restrictions on your phone, not having your phone by your bed at night. You know yeah. all these type of things are really important steps that we need to be maybe much so, better about applying to pastorally as we as we preach and teach, particularly with our young people, but also with our adults as well. Yeah, so, so an accountability structure as well, and people mm -hmm. who we're accountable to. Yeah, that's very helpful. Just thinking in terms of, as we're drawing to a close, we, this is the third podcast that we've had, and we've tried to give a framework for grappling with, with technology, and you very helpfully explained to us uh, in the previous podcasts about how technology uh, isn't neutral and how it, it, has, it has an important role to, in terms of the way that we look at reality and the way we look at the world. We've looked at the areas of identity and relationships, we've talked about time, we've talked about sexuality, and the way to round it all up is that we need to live in wisdom. Mm. Um, how would you sort of, in a sense, rounding up with us in terms of what, what are some sort of take-home things you, you'd want us to get from the book? But even more broadly from that, from the whole area of living in, in, in a virtual world and, and trying to be human as the way that we're intended to be. Yeah, we try to land the book in two ways at the end. One is talking about wisdom and one is talking about virtue formation and becoming the right type of person in terms of virtues being characteristics, moral characteristics that you want to cultivate. And the reason we do that is that because technology is so fast changing that even if we could in the book give solutions for today's problems the book would be outdated really within a week mm. and so often people come to us when we're doing you know um, uh, talks or seminars and we'll say well just give us some answers just tell us what we need to do mm. and we often say to them look we, we could do and you know we will give you concrete you know um, proposals but recognize that you know 
today's problems with Facebook or Twitter are going to be changed by tomorrow and therefore much more powerful is to equip you with a way of thinking, yes. a way of engaging. That's what really wisdom is. Yes. You know, why does wisdom say, um, answer a fool according to his folly and don't answer a fool according to his folly? Well, not because it's contradicting itself, but because it's saying there is a time or a season or a place to answer a fool according to his folly. And there is a time and a season or a place not to. And wisdom is knowing the difference. Yes. And so wisdom is discernment and wisdom is, is creating the right type of moral character. Um, in the fear of the Lord, a really key phrase, yes. which means to revere God and um, read his scriptures and know him in a personal relationship yes. through Jesus Christ in such a way that shapes your moral outlook and yes. shapes what you're trying to be in the world. And then forming those characteristics, those virtues. And a lot of those old Christian virtues, like, for example, one that's been resurrected recently is a, a so-called thing called digital temperance. So temperance sounds like a very old word. It means restraint or self-control. But there's now talk from Silicon Valley about digital temperance, about being self-controlled in your use of a media. And I mentioned in a previous podcast, the time well spent movement, which has nothing to do with Christianity. It's just a, a very, very helpful resource that's put out there about talking about how being self-controlled in the area of media and online yes. media um, can be really helpful in recapturing you know, life. And so I recommend things like that, you know, thinking through what does self-control look like in a digital yes. age and accessing resources like time well spent yes. and trying to therefore become a self-controlled person who will therefore see the pitfalls because today's problems are going to be different to tomorrow's problems. But if I'm the right type of person, I'll be able to cope with both of those. Yes. And also, in a sense, seeing, uh, you know, as understanding the lies that, that are coming at me and understanding what the truths are, and, you know, one of which is that I'm not my own. I'm not an independent right. object or person who's separate from the world around me. I'm part of a family, I'm part of a wider community. The decisions and choices I make do matter. Mm. Um, and, but ultimately, and you alluded to earlier on about this whole issue of Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Mm. And as I, can, as I live in relationship with God and with Christ day by day, I understand his plan for me and I feel like I fall in love with that mm. and I fall in love with what he wants me to be and the person that he's called me to be mm. so that as it were these challenges not necessarily go away but as it were I've got a better story to live and you, and you alluded to that as well I think yeah and yeah. technology is ultimately the story of humanity you know, mm. to, the pictures given to us the things that sell technology to us is a picture of humanity flourishing but the Bible shows us what humanity flourishing looks like. It looks like the person of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect man who lives life well, wisely, with perfect virtues. And therefore, as we see in him the type of people we long to become, then that enables us to evaluate technology and to ask the question, is this particular aspect, app, uh, device helping to become more like Jesus or less like Jesus? And rather, the better question is, in what way is it helping yes. me to become more like Jesus? And in what way is it helping me to become less like Jesus? And therefore, we need to say yes to the ways that it's affirming it and no to the things that it's distorting yes. it. Well, thank you, um, Pete, for really opening this huge sub subject to us, uh, for getting through three podcasts we've done. <laughs> so the book, again, is Virtually Human, Flourishing the Digital World by Ed Brooks and Pete Nicholas. Uh, the website is www.virtuallyhuman.co.uk. Um, we'll have some show notes that, that go with this, as well as a link to, to the book. Um, and uh, so just leave me to say thank you very much, Pete. And, thanks, Sunil. Uh, thank you. Time. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme 
This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drstanil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.